This is Lev Grossman, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. are listening to the great big beautiful podcast this week on the show i remember one one time it was like four or five hundred people and there was this line like this just went out the door and people are like sobbing and they're telling you their their story once i was there like two hours three hours and i would be so emotionally drained and you know and all the letters people had sent me and it was amazing and wonderful and i'm so glad i helped people but now I have kids coming up and saying, so what happened when Trinket went to her <laughs> uncle's? Like, are you going to tell us in book two? <laughs> Here's your host, Jamie Green. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Green. Thank you so much for coming back. You can find the show at thegbbpodcast.com and at theroarbots.com. You can find me on Twitter at theroarbots and the show at thegbbpodcast. Thanks so much for coming back. This week, um, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I know I say that a lot, but I know you don't come here to listen to me blabber on at the top. So I'm going to just jump right in. This week, I'm talking to Mira Bartok, whose young adult novel, The Wonderling, should be on everybody's uh, wish list, to-be-read list, stack of books beside your night table, beside your bed, whatever you have. Um, in a nutshell, this is, uh, imagine a Charles Dickens story with talking animals. And <laughs> in a nutshell, that's what you've got. Uh, it is a lovely story about uh, friends um, who find themselves in particularly difficult uh, circumstances in a bad situation, uh, and a little bit of magic, a little bit of friendship, a little bit of hard luck, a little bit of good luck, and, and it's a fantastic story. Um, in this conversation, I talk with Mira about the book, obviously. We also talk about her previous book, which was a memoir um, and uh, a very emotional memoir, and we talked quite a bit about that and how uh, the two books are, are almost polar opposites. Uh, we also talk about museums and and uh, working in museums and Western Massachusetts and memory and all sorts of things. Do stick around until the end. It's a fantastic conversation. As always, thank you for coming back every week, every month, every new episode. If you're not subscribed, please hit subscribe wherever you find podcasts, um, whether it's Google, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. We are wherever you can find podcasts. So find us, hit subscribe, make sure we end up in your app, um, in your ears every time we have a new episode. I do appreciate it. Leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Um, and I'm going to stop babbling because I've already babbled long enough. I am Jamie Green, your host. This is my conversation with Mira Bartok about The Wonderling and many other fantastic things. We will see you guys next time. Thanks so much and take care. So I want to just jump in and start talking, obviously, about The Wonderling. Um, obviously, in you read any, any reviews that you can read online... Um, it always draws a comparison to something like Dickens. It has a very Dickensian feel. As I was reading it, um, it felt sort of like you took Dickens and a series of unfortunate events and kind of tossed them into a blender. Um, <laughs> is that what you were going for? Or what did you sort of have in your mind as you were writing? Um, well, because I, I, my first love is, is art, I, I, I started with drawings you know I always start with um I draw creatures I draw my characters and but at the, at the during the time that I I um went right before I started writing the book I had um reread or and I didn't I hadn't read all of Dickens books but I had read quite a few when I was younger I I went through this Dickens you know crazy period of Dick, Dickensian mm -hmm. mania and um so I, I kind of wanted to I was 
um, also I had been, well, you know, if you took, if you, if you just, you actually could take Lev Grossman's interview with you and just repost it um, because <laughs> pretty much everything he said, everything he said, including his um, influence of T.H. White's on The Once and Future King. Yeah. Um, it's exactly what I would say, <laughs> except the fact that I didn't have three children. I had a dog and two stepdaughters who could live with me. So just use that one. Um, sure. But, I'll but, just cut him in. I'll edit him in right here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so so uh, I was reading certain things and listening, mostly listening to audiobooks because I've struggled a little bit with reading um, since my last brain injury and very slow reader reader. Um, so I was listening to all these Dickens books and I really wanted to do, um, so one influence that came in was, um, Oliver, Oliver Twist, obviously. And I mm. was like playing on that, um, especially in a couple scenes, but the other, other, um, uh, definitely not, uh, um, Lemony Snicket's books because I have to admit I never read them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw the movie but I didn't read them. So, um, uh, but the other thing other than um, the T.H. White book was um, I have to say probably um, oh, there, there. this is might sound silly but there is there is a show on um sci-fi which i don't have tv but i get things about five years after they're made on I'm, TV. I'm right there with you yep okay <laughs> so there is a show called merlin oh uh, yeah with colin um what's his name colin can't remember his last name um because i don't do names yeah. but anyway um i loved his character i loved the i wanted to create a book that had a character who was really pure at heart sort of like a babe character mm-hmm. and um who also had um some kind of lack as in you know he has he can't hear or he he can hear but no one knows it and he's bullied and he has this th- what appears to be a deficit mm-hmm. um and 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 that that um, and ha- and keeps his sort of gift hidden. And I love that series, that uh, Merlin series, and I love that character. And so so um, and it also is you know it plays in the Arthurian legend. So once again, go back to Lev Grossman's interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you kind me- of those things. Yeah. You mentioned um, you started with uh, sketching out the characters, and Arthur I know started as a rabbit. Uh, yeah. in your original idea, and then eventually turned into a fox. So uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about, about animals and the roles that they play, but why, in your mind, did he move from one to the other? Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that I, you know, I realized that my rabbit, my rabbit looked really cartoonish, and it looked so much like uh, Matt Grenig's Life in Hell character. Mm. <laughs> I, I knew this. I'd get, I knew I'd get sued. Not only that, the the ear looked so phallic; it was just <laughs> one giant ear, and I thought that's just going to be distracting. So, um, and I was just I toyed around with a bunch of different creatures, and then I was looking at my dog, who um, she has these giant ears, and um, I just thought, oh, of course yeah. it this character looks the, usually the answers to my questions are right in front of me and right in front of my face. And, and, and that was my dog, Sadie. Um, and so I wanted the character to be, uh, Fox like, but also dog like. So really Arthur doesn't exactly look like a Fox, yeah. you know, his nose is too wide. It's too dog. Like the other thing is that I was reading, um, I was reading about, you know, generally foxes are very, um, in a lot of myths, um, folktales is, you know, kind of a bit of a wily character, um, sometimes sneaky, um, very clever. Some In some Native American stories um, and, and, and a couple other cultures, actually, there's there's a shamanic element to foxes. And, and I can't remember which culture it is. I used to know all this stuff because I studied this stuff. But... I can't remember which culture um, where where foxes could travel between realms, kind of like a liminal character, like um, you know, could could exist on different planes and 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 has a whole other uh, can hear sounds and and um, you know, in other worlds and other mm-hmm. levels. So I was kind of very interested in that um, that other version of what a fox fox like being could be and i really play with that a lot in book two which i'm working on right now 
Um, well, that's a, that's a tease. We'll get to book two in, in a little bit, but <laughs> um, I, I am personally, I'm really interested in quote unquote talking animal stories. Um, and I, I'm just curious what drew you to that, I guess you could call it a genre, but what, what drew you to that for this story in particular? I, I had another book, which is probably going to be ne- my next one after book two, um, which uh, without giving too much away, it's part graphic novel, part kind of ripping off Brian Selznick's mm, um, yeah. style. Um, and it's set in a place where I lived um, for a while in northern Norway in a Sami village, which is a lap, you know, so-called laps. Right. Um, and um, and it's set in World War II. And, and so I was working on this this book and about and working on these human characters um and there was a little dog in the in the story and this i just became so interested in this little creature Mm -hmm. so that was part of it this sort of familiar that's part of the story but the other the other piece is that um i just was i'm obsessed with animals i love animals i used to work at a zoo um i i've had a lot of experience just traveling and visiting various uh wildlife rehab places around the world. And, and I just, I love critters. And, um, with this other book that I was working on, it just seems so, such a huge endeavor that I, I thought, you know what, make it for a little bit younger audience. Cause that was YA and, and, um, and you're, and you don't draw people as well as you draw animals. And this'll just be a tryout book. You're not probably not going to even pub- get it published. It's just going to be your tryout novel. And she never wrote a novel before. And then, you know, well, there you go. So <laughs> that's always how it even, is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and then I, of course, I made the I made the animal characters have mostly human bodies. And then I had to. So I had to start learning how to do figures. So there you go. When I mean, but when animals in these types of stories where animals are your characters and you've got talking animals, um, they tend to skew towards certain stereotypes. You know, mice have mm-hmm. a certain personality, foxes have a certain personality, bears, what have you. Did you intentionally try to write against stereotype for any animals, or did you just, whatever their character was, no matter what animal you had cast them as, that's just the direction that you went in? Um, a little bit of both. I definitely wanted to write a different kind of fox character and I I had written my the only picture book I ever did was is published in Norway and it's called Fox Has His Day and it's there are all these um tales uh are you know tales from stories that people in this village in in Norway told me about they're all related almost all all of them are related to fox or most of them and um so I wanted to have this different kind of fox character um, as far as the other characters, I wanted to have a good rat and a bad rat. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think what other creatures. Uh, the trinket, trinket. Um, I just, you know, I, I didn't really even pay attention to how kiwis operate um, in the world. I mean, I know, I know how they operate in the world. I have seen them in. I have seen them before, um, but I just kept seeing. It's more a visual thing. I kept seeing. Um, I kept seeing Arthur, my main character, um, or number 13 as he starts out mm-hmm. in his, you know, his life. I kept seeing him with sort of holding this little um, bird-like creature that was a kiwi. I just, it's, it's more, generally more like an, it, I see an image. I see it, and, and, and then it kind of goes from there. Um, uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. It does. I am, it does. I am worried about stereotypes, and I'm sure that there are five million in the book. But I, you know, I do my best. <laughs> you mentioned that the Wonderling was your first novel, and I want to I want to pick at that a little bit because it's not your first book, but it's your first novel. No. Um, and w- so for you, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered as you sat down to write a novel versus something like a memoir, which was your previous book? There was a lot of pressure from my publisher, from Simon and Schuster, for me to do another mm-hmm. nonfiction book, and and all I needed to send them were, you know, was two chapters, and I could get a deal. And I was really broke, and I was like, okay, what do I want to write about? 
Um, and I'm really interested in the history of wonder. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I wrote a book, a 400 page book that was um, about the history of wonder interspersed with personal, you know, and I was so bored with it. And um, I just, I really wanted, and I was writing all these short stories at the same time. I really wanted to write fiction. So I sent my, my agent kind of both those things. And she, she left a message saying, on my, my answering machine saying, um, uh, I get it now. You're trying to write about wonder when these stories are wonder. You should be writing fiction right now. And then I just started drawing this character and it just kind of happened. Um, and it, it was, I think that a friend of mine, Jane Yolen, I know you guys have had her on the show before. Jane, yeah. Jane said, you know, when you read your, when I read your memoir, I see this, it, it's like you're, you're just, you're just biting at the bit to write fantasy. And, 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 uh, because you go off on these tangents and you're just trying to, you just really want to write fantasy. I just said, you're right. I really do. And, and that's kind of, it was so, it's like, it was like coming home when I just started that book. Like I just knew the first, I knew the first line. I knew the, what was going to happen. Um, it just unfolded, and and I, I foolishly thought that book two would be as easy and f- as fun as <laughs> one. And whoever put that idea into my head, <laughs> oh my god! I, I, if anyone wants to call me and give me, um, you know, advice on writing sequels, please feel free. <laughs> it is hard, but um. Yeah, I just, it was like, I just, I can't even remember what you just asked me, but all I can see is writing, <laughs> writing the first one was, I mean, of course there were struggles and everything, but it was just so enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, it just, it was like I was home. You, you probably just answered this, but I'm wondering, because writing a fantasy book, especially a fantasy middle grade or, you know, for younger mm-hmm. readers it's a totally different headspace than something like the memory palace, which was deeply personal and revealing and, 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 you know, drawing from a a, a very emotional place. So Mm. was it, was it a relief to just sort of live in this world that you've created and just, and just go and create characters and, and just have fun? Yeah, it really was. And, and, um, but oddly enough, the Wonderling is, in some ways more autobiographical than my memoir (laughs) because I was a lot like the protagonist. I was a lot like I was most people, unless, you know, my, my childhood friends know this, you know, I can be really gregarious and people just don't realize how introverted I was. And I, I still am sometimes, but I mean, I used to like, I used to like pretend I was a cat insist and tell everyone I was a cat and hide under tables and refuse, you know, I had to eat out of a bowl like a cat. And, and I mean, any kind of game that we played, I insisted on being an animal. I didn't want to be a human because I'd have to talk to humans. Mm -hmm. And so, so I had that kind of, um, I probably today, I, you know, if, if I, if I were a kid today, I probably would have been diagnosed having social anxiety. Instead, I, instead I just, you know, I just drew. So, so, um, but yeah, the writing the Wonderling was just such a relief. Like I, I wrote that, you know, when I was in, I went back to school for um, an MFA in in um, in creative writing, and I, 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 every time I wrote a story, I, you know, or or I wrote a lot of na- nature essays. My mother always showed up. Like I'm writing a. Um, you know, a nature essay about beaver beavers. <laughs> and there was you know, a memory of my mother. And I just thought, okay, you got to get her out of the room. Yeah. And so, and so that once I finished the memory palace, it was like, you know, my, once you say you're never going to do something, then you end up doing it. But, right. but um, it, the, it, other, the other thing, I'll oh, go on. No, I was going to say, it gave you the, the, at least the sense that you could move on. Yeah. And the other thing is that, um, as, 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 um, as touching and, you know, really amazing as it was uh, when I did presentations, you know, like whether it was a book, whether it was a reading for the Memory Palace or some kind of benefit, um, like, you know, speech or something. Um, I mean, I was on book tour for like almost two years for that book. Wow. And, 
the first year was like book tour, you know, first year was the hardcover and then the, and then the paperback. But the second year was like all these, I remember one, one time it was like four or 500 people. And there was this line like this went out the door and people are like sobbing and they're telling you their, their story. My, 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 the, the book signing, signing part of it. Some I, once I was there like two hours, three hours, and I would be so emotionally drained and, you know, and all the letters people had sent me and it was amazing and wonderful. And I'm so glad I helped people. But now I have kids coming up and saying, so what happened when Trinket went to her uncle's? Like, are you going to tell us in book two <laughs> or, or like, where are they going next? And what, what's going to happen to all the little groundlings? And, you know, it's just. Um, you know, Q and A sessions are totally different. <laughs> the random Memory Palace fan who has no interest in the Wonderling and shows up at an event and starts asking me, de- like, how did what did your sister think about the Memory? Pa- the, what did your sister think about your book? And I'm like, well, she liked it, I guess. I mean, yeah. she really liked it. Um, did she feel bad about it? <laughs> what? And I'm thinking, I mean, I know that they're talking about the Memory Palace, so it's yeah, it's a relief. It's just a relief. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how people like keep writing memoirs uh, at all. I mean, I just don't know how they do it. It's just it's just so draining. It's 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 really hard to do. Yeah. Um, they really should. They really should all be writing middle grade fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good change of pace. Write your memoir. Get get everything out, and then right. move on, and then just create right. write fantasy. <laughs> yep. Exactly. But did you find between the two, I mean, take, taking the, the, the personal emotions out of it, but writing nonfiction versus writing fiction, did your, did your process of just getting the words on the page or on the screen, was that the same? Or did you find that even that was different? Um, I find that it's different in book two. But that is complicated because... Because um, before I wrote my the Memory Palace, I had two brain injuries, mm-hmm. and and I I actually every time I wrote something in one day, I would completely forget the next day that I had written anything. So I created a kind of um, I used I love systems and and organizational systems that I developed from or that I learned from working in museums for years, and and so I created a memory cabinet. I won't get into it. It's too complicated. But I, I created a physical cabinet, and I and I would put things in there, and that related to each chapter. And you know, I had a system so that I could I was aware of what I was doing. Um, and then I and then I got a lot better. And I wrote um, the I wrote it in in many ways in a similar way in that um, I read I, I write out loud. I, I generally do. I take a walk every morning, and I write. Um, while I'm walking and then I walk, I write, I mean, people who write in cafes and it quietly to them, I mean, inside themselves, I, I, I don't think I could do that. I write out loud. I have to hear it. I have to get in the physical, um, you know, uh, space of the, um, the make gestures like my care. It's like, I work mm-hmm. a lot like an, an animator. Sure. And so um, I also type out, I mean, type it, tap out syllables like it's on a, it's on a, I, I suppose I did that much more with the memory palace. In the memory palace, I wrote my memoir, I wrote, um, there were sections that I first wrote as poems and then trans and then turned those into paragraphs. But this, the sentence, the sentence level um, language is really, really important to me. And it's still, it still was um, that way with the Wonderling. Um, with book two, I'm struggling with now because I've had a couple more <laughs> falls. I'm struggling with some of the some of the issues that I had with the memory palace, um, and I'm also really late on my deadline because of this last accident. So I'm kind of speed. I'm working in a very different way. Um, I am paying a little less attention to language. I'm I'm play, paying uh, more attention to driving the plot forward and um and it's a little bit it's kind of different you mm-hmm. know whoever said i can't remember who who whoever said um which which writer said you know um that 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 statement about writing um you know once you once you write a novel 
you you don't learn you haven't learned how to write a novel each novel is a completely different story and you have to relearn and approach it in a different way and that's what i'm doing i don't know if that answers your question i am i'm really it's it's a different process with this one yeah it, 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 it certainly does answer my question. You also touched on a couple other things that I wanna wanted to ask about. So we're going to stay right here for a few minutes. Okay, um, sure. Because I know that you, you've said before that you, quote unquote, you write out loud. And I wanted to know, like, what does that mean specifically? Does that mean that you, whatever you write, you have to read it out loud and act it out? No, I hear um, sometimes, oh gosh, it's a, it's a, I write in a lot of different ways. So I, I keep... Um, I keep lists of, uh, I have a variety of notebooks and sketchbooks and I keep in those sketchbooks and notebooks, I keep lists of words and delicious sentences. And, um, and so I'm always looking at language. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always hearing this, you know, the sound of things, um, in a, in a very specific way. And then, um, I'll just hear, you know, I'll hear something like in my head, like I knew that the first sentence I'll, you know, like I just say it out loud before he was called the wonderling, he had many names and I just list them and I'm a list maker. Mm -hmm. A lot of my writing is lists. (laughs) So, and I, and I think, you know, when I was a kid and I had a very, you know, pretty awful traumatic childhood, which like people can read the memory pals for that. Right, right. Um, I kept lists or I would list things in my head to sort of calm my, calm, calm myself down. Yeah. Um, you know, I would list the names of plants, of birds. Um, and it's funny years later, I found out when I went through my mother's things, my mother had schizophrenia and I found out that she did the exact same thing. So, um, well, I don't have schizophrenia. I am a list maker and mm-hmm. I'm very, so I, I sometimes what I say out loud, like I, I, I just, I need to hear it like poetry. Mm-hmm. It's like, and you know, Jamie, I think part of that comes from, um, when I, when I lived in Chicago and was part of the arts, Chicago art scene, the way I made, um, my income to support my um, habit being an artist <laughs> was I worked, I worked in museums. I worked at the Art Institute of Chicago and the field museum of natural history. And when I was at the field museum for years, I would take kids through various tours, you know, the ancient, I was their ancient Egypt person. I was their native American person, um, uh, specialist for, you know, education and all that stuff. And, and I would take kids on these tours not talk at them. I do it all through story. So I, I would take them, say, through the Northwest Coast Native American exhibit. But it, I would be telling stories through objects, and I knew those stories by heart. So all those myths and folk tales from all these cultures, it was always an oral, tra- oral thing for me, you know, to tell stories. So that part of it, I think, comes from that, um, and and also I think. You know, I was in this possible, it's also possibly from being a musician too, and just having to hear, mm-hmm. hear it. I hear it, have to hear it like music. Yeah. When I read, it's a very different thing. And when people don't read their work out loud or have someone else read it, I always find it really strange. Well, it also helps, especially for, for books intending, intended for younger readers because many of these books will be read out loud to them. And so it has to have that certain cadence. And a book that has not been... Like, if an author has not read a book out loud, and then you read it out loud to a kid, it's very clear that the author did not think of this as being eventually going to be read out right. loud. Right. Um, and so it's, it's just it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me. how Because how, everybody... No matter what they, where they come from, what their education was, what their training was, how many books they have have under their belt, every single author I've talked to has a different approach to writing, and it works for them. So it's like, it, 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 it I think it's funny when people ask writers for advice on how to write because <laughs> there is no advice that's good for no, you. You got to figure it out. It's it's different for you. It's different for me. It's different for everybody. Right. 
Um, you know, the other thing is, I just was thinking about, I was listening to this interview, it might have been on Fresh Air, um, with I think Terry Gross was talking to um, Ed Norton, the actor. Yeah. And Edward Norton, and he was talking about how since he was a little kid, he was an obsessive mimic. And um, I, I like, and, and he wasn't making fun of people. He just went, he just would hear an accent, hear someone speak, and he couldn't, he couldn't not, you know, he had to, he had to make, try to sound like that person. It was just such an enjoyable thing to him. And I have been doing that since I, I've been, I, you know, since a little, I was a little kid. I mean, I hear, uh, um, and, and, you know, and maybe that's why, you know, I'm not too bad at learning languages because I pick up, I'm so interested in, in how language sounds. And so I have to hear it. And I, 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 so even in the, in my book, when I do readings, I totally am down with the, I do these like really, I do these fake British accents and I do all the different classes <laughs> and the different regions. And, and, um, you know, if I ever do a reading in, in the UK, I'm sure people will throw tomatoes at me, but, um, <laughs> but I do it, I do it. And it's so much fun. Yeah. No, I love, I mean, I have two young kids and I still read out loud to them and it's, it's just, I have a ball with it. I give everybody a different voice and, you know, it's just, it's fun, you know, and because I know once they, once they age out of that and they don't want me to read to them at bedtime anymore, I'm not probably going to be reading out loud at all anymore. So so, I take advantage of it now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also, I love, I just have to say as a side note, I I love that you used to work in museums. I didn't know that. I didn't come across Mm -hmm. that. My, cause I, that's sort of where I started as well. I started a museum. Yeah, I started a museum. Um, well, when I was in high school, I, vo- I did a lot of volunteer work at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Um, and then after college, I worked at the Holocaust Museum here in D.C. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. I, worked, I worked in collections. So I didn't, I didn't take people on tours, but I worked with the stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And then I, wow. I moved away from that. <laughs> well, my last um, – well, I was going to say my – no, my last museum job was at Harvard um, just for briefly at their, um, it, with their, uh, in the natural, and then was in the Peabody museum with their circumpolar okay. collection. But, but my last job in Chicago, I, I, I went from art and anthropology, anthropological collections to ant- live animals. And I, I worked at the Lincoln park zoo and that was amazing. And I was, I, I was so sad to leave the zoo, even though I have, I have, you know, mixed feelings about zoos. I loved, um, I loved my job yeah. um, in education and conservation. And I, I got to handle a lot of animals and I got to work closely with the nursery. Like I held baby wolves, baby um, sun bears. I mean, Aww. baby cheetahs. I mean, it was, it was really, when you have an encounter like that with, with a wild animal, it's like, it's life changing. And, um, you know, but I, I wrote. I had started writing a series on on different cultures. This this whole other you know nonfiction mm-hmm. middle grade series, and it was just too much. I couldn't keep my zoo job. It was too much yeah. work. Yeah. See, my I I went to school for anthropology, so that's sort of oh, like you're, wow. you're you're really like you're talking my language when I when when you talk about like you worked at the museums and the, with the anthropology collection and other cultures, and I was like, yes, yes. I, <laughs> but unfortunately, what was your what was your uh, focus? Um, it was, it was sub-Saharan Africa and I had a minor in archaeology and I spent two summers in East Africa. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. It's just that that doesn't pay the bills, you know, <laughs> unless you're a, a working archaeologist at a right. university and that wasn't necessarily something I really wanted to pursue. Right. So I worked at, I worked at the museum after college for a few years, then I traveled around the world and... When I came home, I landed in publishing, and that's where I've been ever since. Ah, well, you know, all those, I, I feel like, um, you know, when people say, oh, wow, you've done so many things, and like, yeah. how, like, what does that have to do with what you're doing now? And I always say it has everything to do with what I'm doing now, because it all feeds in all that experience. Like, people think I just popped out one day and just started writing. I right. never thought, I never thought I would be, like, I don't even think of myself as a writer. I just think of myself as an artist who happens to write books sometimes and I'll do I do other things too I mean and and but all those words I wrote 
I, I can, and I, I will continue to write. They all come from these strange, you know, the strange circuitous path I took yeah. in anthropology and zoology and fine arts. And, you know, so it all feeds into the big soup that is book, that is um, yeah. a story. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you always hear that, that cliched advice, write what you know, and whether or not that's true, that's a different argument. But I think it's, it's, it's true to a point in that you have to have, you have to know something, you know what I mean? So it's whether you're actually writing your personal experiences and and only writing from that, what you know, but you have to have lived experiences. And it's, it's what we have done with our lives, no matter what crazy route we've gone through, that informs what kind of writer you're going to be or what kind of art you're going to create. So you're not necessarily putting yourself, per se, on the page, but you're taking everything that you've been through and using that to inform the story that you're creating. Right. And then, then, and then I would go a step further and say, write what you're curious about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I really, there are things that... Um, you know, like I start with what I know and then I go, I, you know, then it's just my big question is always the what if, mm-hmm. what's there, what's over there, what would happen if, um, I don't know anything about this thing, I'm going to learn about it. Um, sometimes I challenge myself in ways that are this just like they're really stupid ways <laughs> because <laughs> it's like you will never learn all that stuff. And, and be able to write about it, but I try. <laughs> yeah, it's, you got to set goals. You got to give yourself a challenge. Otherwise, you're not even going to crack the ice or crack the surface, you know? Right. Um, you touched on this. And if you're, if, you're, if you're willing, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, because I know that um, because of your, your brain injuries that you've had and the issues that you have with, with, with memory, you had to come up with, I guess, quote unquote, hacks. You had to come up with solutions for yourself as a writer Mm -hmm. to keep track of what you wrote and remember what you wrote. And you mentioned uh, an actual physical memory box. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about that and and what you have found that works for you. So it's, well, with book two, it's been a little harder because now now I'm living with five head injuries. (laughs) Like, I know, I need a helmet. It's really... (laughs) Um, um, uh, but I, I, there, it's what it is anyway. Um, and I, and all the, you know, so this is a sequel. And so a lot of, um, what, what a lot, you know, I, I'm not JK Rowling, you know, I didn't spend five years plotting out a bunch of books. Mm -hmm. A lot of things I dropped into book one, it was like, wouldn't it be cool if there were a bunch of cats? with diamond collars walking around and that was a sign of status. So now it's like, okay, why? Yeah. And, and so one of my systems, um, you know, to remember those, this is just one part of it. One of, one of my systems to remember those, those little thing hints that I've dropped and I have to follow through on. I have, um, a couple really, really giant dry erase boards. So after, um, when I started into book two, I I went through the book in a very thorough manner and I wrote down lists and put them on these giant um, race boards of, of things that have to be followed through. You know, I need to figure out, um, you know, why the cats, why the birds and um, that sit on top of hats, you know, all that sounds like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Um, so that's one thing I do because if I just make a little list on my computer, I need to see it visually. So that's one thing I do. The other thing I do is, um, I have, uh, I have journal, I have notebooks, um, that are color coded and, and, um, so I will, I will keep track of some things or write, you know, like, um, Maybe there, there's something I really want to explore, but it's not until part three of of the second book. And so each each section has a color code. Um, uh, I, I, I use so I use color coding. I I um, the other thing I've done is um, what have I done? Um, I have haven't used my memory cabinet. I've really um, I've been using my wall. I'm very, I, I, I put up images that relate to certain p- 
parts of the book um, as reminders. Um, you know, you, m- my advice for someone who's struggling with this is mm-hmm. to really think about, I always think about what remains and what has, what um, sort of uh, grounds me and, and is also right in front of my face. And for me, it's my ability to draw and my, my, my memory of images um, and pictures it's, is very strong. Yeah. And my memory of, of uh, words and of, of um, people and scenes or, or like what happens in a scene is not um, anymore. And so um, if it means, you know, drawing out a scene, you know, like I have a scene in book two that is, um, uh, that's, well, I don't want to give anything away. Let's just say it's a secret place that okay. ground, that groundlings go to. Um, I have to draw the whole thing out so that I remember and I stick, you know, I'll stick it on my wall. So I, I remember it's easier to do that for me than mm-hmm. to just keep going back and try to remember things. So, you know, um, one thing that's helped also is, um, um, is I, I started working with this book in Scrivener rather than word. Mm-hmm. And so for someone who writes in a very nonlinear fashion, you know, you can move chapters around really easily and you can also pull in images to, as reminders, um, and references. So I need a lot of pictures that re, that spark my memory. Yeah. Um, and so I've been do, doing, I use Scrivener for that as well. And that's been so helpful. I wish I had used Scrivener for on um, the memory palace. I, I think it would have really helped a lot, but there you go. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really know it existed then. So I don't know if that answers your question. But... It, it does. It absolutely does. Um, Book two, I'm not going to ask you to reveal any secrets, but how large is this series that you're envisioning? Um, when it was initially sent to publishers, um, it, it, a trilogy was meant, mm-hmm. you know, we po- um, pushed it as a trilogy. And then every every single publisher who, you know, wanted to make an offer said, I think this would make a good duology. And I didn't know that was a word, but yeah. it is a word. <laughs> And I was, I found myself relieved because I thought, wow, if I do three books that what's going to happen with this other one that's set in the Arctic and then this, all these other projects I had started. And, and so it's, it is a two book, um, a two book, um, series. However, what's made book two a little complicated is I'm trying to merge my two book ideas into one. Mm. And, um, so that's, I finally figured out how to do that, um, this week. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but, um, that kind of made it tough because I had three books in mind. Um, and, uh, so it's, that said the, you know, if the movie ever happens, that's a whole other story, but, um, they, they bought the rights for, you know, if it, the first one's successful, they, they have the rights to just keep doing them. Um, and, um. So the movies to keep, just keep doing them. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 If, 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 I mean, it's all kind of crazy in limbo now because of Disney, Disney owns my, owns the, the, book. the, the world. They own the world. Disney owns point. the world. And, <laughs> and my, my whole team, my all amazing, 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 all women, um, uh, team from Fox 2000 is now at Sony and they, I'm still in touch with them frequently and see them in, in LA, but they don't own my book anymore. Disney does. Um, the director's still on board. Working Title Films is still on board for production, but um, we're kind of waiting to see what Disney yeah. is going to do. Um, <sighs> they've got a lot on their plates at the moment because I think they uh, they probably overpurchased. <laughs> now they've got a lot of projects in the in in the middle of or in various stages of uh, development. Well, they're dumping. They are dumping. Um, I think it's 257 um, Fox movies. Some were like almost ready to be, you know, somewhere in post-production even. Or, or yeah. re- so they 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 put out I think a handful. They they actually shuttered most of the movies that that Fox had in you know had had in the queue, Eesh. and and there are 
a handful of ones that are in limbo and mine is in one of those. Um, I think they've always wanted to work with Stephen Daldry, the director. Yeah. So everybody thinks it's still going to happen and Daldry's still on board and, you know, he planned to do this right after Wicked comes out, Mm -hmm. which is 2021. But um, we'll see, you know, I'm still optimistic, but, you know, I also, it's Hollywood, you know. Sure. What it's got to be, I mean... The people who, like, that's their career, what a crazy, crazy industry that is. Like, selling something doesn't mean anything. Making something doesn't mean anything. Because, like you just said, the very last minute, it could just get pulled out from underneath you. Yep. That's it's so, it's just, that's just wild to me. It's wild to me. But yep, fingers you crossed. To, <laughs> you have to be kind of um, realistically hopeful. It's like now there's a bunch of stuff going with the Memory Palace um, for possible you know, it's being sent out to some people in television. And, and, um, you know, when the memory pals came out, it was like, Oprah has it. And Oprah, and Oprah's going to do a show on about you. And, and, and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And this famous, uh, actress wants to read it and loves your book, you know, and, and nothing happened. Um, and now who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Um, I, I need to ask, you live in Western Massachusetts yep. and, um, it seems to be like a hotbed of sorts for the, for children's authors and artists. So we've had a it's number of great. them on the show. I mean, we've got Bo Willems, Tony DiGiulisi, yep. Jane Yolen, Jared yep. Krasoska, Jane, uh, Grace Lynn, the Eric Carl Museum is there. You are there. Yep. What is in the water in Western Massachusetts? <laughs> so my theory is that Jane moved there and it's like built, you know, all roads lead to Jane because <laughs> now that's my theory and we're close friends. <laughs> but I know that when she moved to the area, um, she drew a lot of people to her who wanted to learn from her. And um, and they're all it already was a center of book arts. So there was a lot of and I kind of come from that a little bit, um, you know, doing bookbinding and paper making artist books and so I knew about the area be- because of that you mm-hmm. know on um, um, I, I I visited the area in the 80s and visited various art you know book arts people um, totally clueless about the other stuff so uh, you know Jane Jane might have to tell her I said this but I mean I, I do I do think that's sort of part of it um, and then it's just like I don't know. It just, um, it's just been the center for book, book lovers. And, um, and it's, I don't know. It's just, it is really, there are so many people there. It's crazy. I mean, the, 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 the talent pool is astounding. I mean, it really is. And in the Eric, I love the museum. I I mean, I was there, I tossed dirt into the, you know, I'd help dig a shovel full you know, before it was built and oh, was wow. at the, um, it was, it, it's such a great museum. And, um, it, you know, I mean, I, I have nothing bad to say. No, no, it really is. That was on like the top, if I had a museum bucket list, that would have been number one for the longest time. And about a year and a half ago, we finally, I finally made it there and I was just in love. I just in love with it. It's such a great place. Yeah. There's a great show, uh, Myra Coleman show right now. And then the let, one of the last ones, oh my God, it was a, Peter Seuss is a huge, mm-hmm. I'm a huge, huge fan of his, and it was this, probably one of the best exhibits I've ever seen in my life. Oh my gosh. I mean, from a curatorial point of view and just everything. Um, every exhibit, I, I get all their emails and every exhibit, I was like, I, I need to drive up there for this. And then I look at, you know, how many hours it is for me and I was like, oh, I just can't. <laughs> Well, you always have a place to stay. Oh, thank you. Seriously, <laughs> you know, I have, I have host. I mean, you get a tiny, crappy little room, but oh, <laughs> and no TV. <laughs> That's okay. No, I, you might be regretting this because this is how I ended up at Bob Alley's house and having lunch with him in Rhode Island because he was on the show, and then I went up and I went to the Eric Carl Museum when the Paddington exhibit was there, and it was most of oh, yeah. most of his art. Yeah. And uh, later on that same trip, we ended up in Rhode Island at at Bob's house, and we went out to lunch, and it was great. <laughs> yeah, I, I met him. Um, 
I met him and his wife at this wonderful thing that um, it's it's an annual thing for the um, the Rhode Island Children's Book Festival, and they host this amazing dinner in the archives room, oh, and nice. and um, and that's how I met. Um, nice. They're so sweet, both of them. They're just so yeah. they're wonderful people. Um, all right, I'm gonna let you go, but I have one last question. Yeah, ask. I'm 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 pretty <laughs> feeling pretty perky, so whatever whatever you want, I'm here. From where you're sitting right now, what advice would you give to your ten year old self? Mm, good question. Let me think back about how what I was doing at ten. I would say what I say to any any young person now, um, especially people who are in, you know, their teens or twenties who, um, who don't feel like, like in terms of music, don't feel like they really have to learn their instrument well, cause they could just sort of do this lo-fi thing. Um, and it's going to be okay. Um, or, or, uh, visual artists who don't really feel like they have to learn, really learn how to draw, um, because they're, their ideas are so amazing. It doesn't matter. They don't want to look like they're over, like they're, um, you know, over produced, you know, Mm -hmm. they're, 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 I would say really learn your craft, really learn it well, because there will come a time when your ideas far surpass what you can do technically. And, and when I was 10, when I was 10, I was drawing a lot. But I was also, um, I, I didn't really think, and I continue to think this way, um, that I didn't really need to learn how to, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really need to learn how to, you know, how to do, um, I didn't need to be classically trained. I didn't really need to, to learn these other things. I didn't really need to learn how to draw that well because I was just, you know, I was good as it, you know, I was better than everyone at right. that point. Um, I didn't think I was better than everyone, but I, you know, I, I had that, I had, um, you know, I was like one of the really good visual artists in, in school. Mm-hmm. And so, but when I got to college, I just, um, my first two years, I just didn't do any foundation classes. And then when I transferred to art school, it was kind of too late. And now I'm making up for lost time. Hmm. I'm taking figure drawing classes and all those things. And I, and, and, uh, so at, at age 10, I would say, um, just, just have that discipline, have that discipline and keep, keep doing it. And, and, um, so you can break the rules. Um, so I guess, I guess that's probably what I would say. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care.